This is hell. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. And it was that kind of money that for-profit power providers were insisting upon if they were going to provide the green power that citizens in the state of New York were demanding in this age of worsening climate change. But then something happened. The power of private power companies was finally challenged by popular legislation in the very halls of state power, which the power providers had been dominating seemingly forever. So, according to the website, uh, publicpowerny.org, the Build Public Renewables Act is a New York State bill that will unleash the power of public funding to build publicly owned 100% renewable energy, create a new era of green union jobs, help slash energy bills for those who need it most, and make New York a national leader in the fight to win a future we'd be proud to pass on to those to come. BPRA, again, the Build Public Renewables Act, unleashes the power of public funding, including via the Inflation Reduction Act, to build 100% renewable energy directly. PublicPowerNY.org states, While New York passed leading climate targets in 2019, its reliance on for-profit corporations to meet them has kept New York stuck at just 4% wind and solar power every year since. BPRA enables the New York Power Authority, the nation's largest publicly owned power provider, to fix this. Every year, the New York Power Authority will perform a review on whether New York is on track to reach 70% renewable by 2030 and 100% clean energy by 2040 per state mandates. It's if it's not such as sorry, if it's not such as in every year so far, NYPA will step it in to build enough energy to make up the gap and keep us on track. The energy NYPA builds will create tens of thousands of green union jobs thanks to ironclad prevailing wage requirements, project labor agreements, and by American provisions finally fulfilling the promise of the Green New Deal. With the strongest labor and just transition language that energy unions have ever seen, the Build Public Renewable Act could be the most powerful tool for bringing full unionization to the renewables industry, especially for contractors and subcontractors who are too often left without labor protections. As today's guest adds, BPRA passed with nearly everything the Democratic Democrat Socialists of America wanted, the DSA wanted, including the closure of six power plants causing asthma in black and brown communities. I mean, it sounds great, right? Environmentalists are happy, workers are happy, uh, the needs of the marginalized are fulfilled, but it also sounds like it should have been impossible to pass. So how did, how did this, and get this socialist, get a new law on the books to fight climate change? And what does it say about today's Democratic Party when it was so opposed to the act originally? In a few minutes, we will have the return of journalist, essayist, author, teacher, and columnist Liza Featherstone, who wrote the In These Times article, New York Socialists One Big 
on climate ch change. How did it happen? Lives as a columnist for Jacobin, as well as for the New Republic's Apocalypse Soon, which covers climate change, fossil fuels, renewable energy, environmental justice, and life in a warming world. You can find Apocalypse Soon at newrepublic.com slash apocalypse soon. Liza is also a contributing writer to The Nation, where she writes the advice column, Asking for a Friend. She edited the collection Comrade Kolontai, writer, Writings on Sex, Family, and Women's Rights, which will be released in February of 2024. Alexandra Kolontai was a Russian revolutionary politician, diplomat, and Marxist theoretician. She served as the People's Commissar for Welfare in Vladimir Lenin's government and from 1917 to 1918 was also the leading advocate for women's rights and free love within the Bolshevik Party and the first woman in history to become an official member of her governing cabinet. So that sounds fascinating. Liza's most recent book is Divining Desire, Focus Groups, and the Culture of Consultation, which we discussed with her back in 2018. That interview is available for free at our website, thisishell.com. We also spoke with Liza back in 2016 about her then-just-published book, False Choices, the Faux Feminism of Hillary Rodham Clinton. This is Liza's fifth appearance on This Is Hell. Most recently, she was on the show back in November of 2019, just before the pandemic, to discuss an article she had written for the New Republic, Moving Beyond Misogyny, Why Do They Hate Us? You can follow Liza on Twitter at L Feathers. That's with a Z. The letter L and then Feathers with a Z. Producing is Dan Kugler. Dan, how was your weekend? The weekend was good. I, um, I, I've had this antenna that I wanted to set up to my TV for some time to watch Sven, Sven Gulli okay. on TV, <laughs> which is I, I, it's not available on streaming, which is what I usually watch. I set up the antenna, and I haven't watched like antenna TV forever. Yeah. And I'm addicted. I'm like, I watch Sven Gulli, like Star Trek reruns. Uh, so you're watching all of the old, like, over the air stations. Yes. That so crazy. It's, Did you get up on your roof? No, it's, it's connected, you know, to the TV. Oh, okay. So, uh, but uh, there's a lot more channels than I remember. So <laughs> yes, there are. There's a whole great. bunch more, a whole bunch more digital channels yes. now. So uh, this past weekend, I was supposed to be at Riot Fest as friends of the show Flogging Molly had invited me to hang out with them backstage. However, I broke my small toe a couple weeks ago, and I've been trying to rehab by walking as much as I can. In doing so, I've been limping a lot, and the leg that is limping the one with the foot that has a broken toe, now has a pulled hamstring and strained calf muscle, uh, making walking nearly impossible, and standing is just painful. Then there's the people from the surrounding North Lawndale neighborhood, uh, the area that surrounds Riot Fest, the people who live around North or, uh, Douglas Park and protested against Riot Fest being in the park in the first place without any community input on how the event would take place or even if it would or should. So I had a bum leg. People were protesting against Riot Fest. And I want to thank my broken toe, my strained calf, and pulled hammy for standing with the community of North Lawndale and giving me even more reasons to boycott Riot Fest this past weekend. Dan, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? 
What can climate change do for you? We will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our talk with Liza in just a couple of minutes. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Dan has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is shikembe chorba. Wow, pretty good on the pronunciation there. Not so bad. Practice. An article from earlier this month at LP had the headline, The Bulgarian Soup That Cures a Hangover. The story reports that Shikembe Chorba's two main ingredients, pieces of calf's stomach and fresh milk, may seem difficult to combine in a single recipe. <laughs> you think? But it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> and the combination is known in Bulgaria as a hangover cure, alongside local specialties like fermented cabbage juice and iran, a drink made with water, yogurt, and salt. The dish also includes oil, butter, paprika, salt, garlic, wine vinegar, and chili. Uh, makes you wish you didn't drink at all. <laughs> it, it does. <laughs> right? It does. It does. Uh, Shikembe Chorba has had a peculiar social evolution in Bulgaria. It was once considered a dish of lo- lowest classes. Its tripe was cheaper than heart and liver. In the 1930s, wealthy Bur- Bulgarians began eating it as a cure after a night of drinking. During the communist, communist regime, the unpretentious places that served it, known as Shikembe Jujitsi. That's pretty good. <laughs> it's decent. Yeah. Became places of encounter for opposition artists and intellectuals who gave the places and the establishments a certain romantic and rebellious, rebellious aura, according to historian Albina Shudkodrova, author of the book Communist Gourmet. Which I want to get now. Yeah, that sounds that like sounds a fan. awesome. <laughs> it does. Uh, that makes this week's hangover cure, Shikembe Chorba. We got an email from an email account that appears to be that of a real live listener of the show. It's from David L., who writes, Hi, Chuck. I'm David, and I'm a passionate advocate for freedom of speech, libertarianism, and political liberty. So you're probably wondering what I was and what I was thinking, and that is, why is David L. getting in touch with This Is Hell? David L., it seems, has never heard the show. That is, if David L. does exist and is a real live human being and not just a spam bot. David L., as in Libertarian, continues by explaining, I recently came across This Is Hell, and the quality of content and the engaged community you have built has caught my attention. Quality of content and engaged community both kind of sound like compliments, but are also easily dismissed as being too generic and could mean just about anything. But thanks, I guess. I mean, we do have an engaged community, but what about the quality of content? Is that quality good, bad, mediocre? David the Libertarian does not say. David then tells us that he has crafted an informative article on the topic of firearms and their role in promoting personal liberties and individual freedom. The article covers various aspects, including the historical significance of the Second Amendment and its connection to broader libertarian principles, David says. I believe that this piece would be of great interest to your audience. 
and David L., if you truly believe your libertarian views on guns will actually be interesting to our audience, then you do not understand our engaged community, as you call them. And you definitely did not hear our in-depth, long-form interview in June 2022 with John Schwartz about his Intercept article, Right-Wing Supreme Court Continues Its Great Fraud About the Second Amendment. In that conversation, John reminds us how Supreme Court Justice Warren Burger was quoted after retiring, saying the Second Amendment was, quote, or has been, quote, the subject of one of the greatest pieces of fraud, I repeat the word fraud, on the American public by special interest groups that I have ever seen in my lifetime. That fraud, David L., is the misguided belief that the Second Amendment has anything at all to do with legalizing or constitutionally protecting individual gun ownership. David concludes by writing, I would be more than happy if you would consider publishing my article on your website. Let me know your thoughts. Best regards, David, who closes by saying he's the founder of some libertarian group that I'm not going to mention because we'd rather nobody knew about David's libertarian group. So obviously he did not respond, uh, we did not respond because it's spam, right? But that hasn't stopped David the Libertarian as five days later he sent pretty much the exact same email. And then four days later he did again. And if David is representative of Libertarians, Libertarianism, or his Libertarian organization that he has founded, uh, they're terrible at research, unable to determine whether we or our guests are anything but Libertarian. Which explains David's apparently uninformed view on guns as well as the Constitution, a view that also seems to have gone through the same rigorous research that led him to believe our engaged community, our audience, would want to hear or read what he has to say about the liberating effect of guns. You too can email us at chuck at thisishell.com or you can message us via Facebook, Discord, Patreon, uh, even Twitter, X, whatever it's called, at This Is Hell Radio. And if you do, and even if it's dopey libertarian spam, we'll likely read whatever it is that you have to say on air. Coming up, how socialists got a law passed to decarbonize the state of New York's economy. Dan shares some of your answers to our to this week's question from hell we will tell you what happened during our most recent bonus patreon podcast which is available right now at patreon.com slash this is hell we'll tell you what's happening over the rest of this week's shows and as it is monday historian dr seb vupper has a new past inside the present when seb provides the historical context from the past so we can have a better understanding of our present dan what is seb talking about this week seb will uh, look at the 19th century's most devastating civil war. No, not that one. He's pretty sure most listeners haven't heard about it yet. I am pretty sure as well. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus. This is hell. The recent socialist-driven climate change victory in the state of New York is almost unbelievable. To outsiders, it can seem to have come out of nowhere. But it's been a long process that has evolved, transformed, out of a movement that originally did not have global warming as its focal point. Here to help us understand how the unbelievable happened, journalist, essayist, author, teacher, and columnist Liza Featherstone returns to This Is Hell to talk about her In These Times article, New York Socialists One Big on Climate Change, How Did It Happen? Welcome back to This Is Hell, Liza. I'm good. How are you? Good. It's always great to hear your voice. You know, Two months uh, after the last time we talked, uh, 
COVID-19 made landfall here in the United States, and I just want to make sure that's not going to happen again. So what's going to happen in two months from now after we've had you on the show? Oh, no, 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 no COVID. Um, I, I, I hope our relationship is not cursed that way. That would be terrible. <laughs> that would be terrible. So you write, you write that socialists can get fractious with one another, but as one hardworking eco-socialist leader in the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, the NYCDSA, will tell you an existential existential threat to humanity like climate change can bring people together. You then quote the person with that title, uh, the chair of the eco-socialist leader of the New York City chapter, the Democratic Socialists of America, Charlie Heller, saying it's not like we're debating about Lenin. Do you think that's the outsider view of New York City's DSA or even DSA generally, that it's a bunch of people who are well-versed in all the forms and history of socialism and are all very contentious, arguing for their type or view of socialism? Do you think that's the view from outsiders? And to what extent is that accurate? Um, yeah, well, I, I started with that because I thought it was funny. Um, and, um, and, and it's, it's, it's the sort of thing that is um, um, funny if you're someone outside the socialist movement and has sort of a stereotypical view that it's like a bunch of all a bunch of like nerds who are stuck in the past. <laughs> um, um, but it's also, um, but it's also kind of funny if you are really on the left, because people do often argue about um, very um you know, small and um, um, and sometimes um, not immediately relevant seeming things, um, often very contentiously, and you know, have done so since um, you know the days of Karl Marx and even earlier. Um, so, um, so there's you know, it's one of those instances where there there is sometimes a grain of truth to a stereotype, <laughs> um, and uh, um, and um, and so and I and I also. Um, I also began with that because um, I think there is a lot of division um, among the left and um, and in the and in the socialist movement as well, um, and that it was um, interesting in that light um, how well people were able to come together um, around um, around this um, this big piece of climate legislation and organize um, around it without a lot of. Um, um, of you know fraction uh, factionalism and um and to that end i i thought um i thought one of the things that is really that we're seeing that is really encouraging um uh, i think is this um this willing toness to um try things out um and see what works um rather than um just being dogmatic about it you know and um and i think that um you know that a lot of outsiders um would assume um that um that the socialists were just going to um you know kind of dogmatically stick to um you know whatever lenin said um but also that is our experience on the left right that a lot of times people won't try something because um their dogma says you know uh, we hate electoral politics or you know we hate um you know we or you know we don't like what the federal government is doing so we're not going to build on it or do anything related to it you know or you know there's a, like a lot of times there is there is that kind of um um dogmatism so one of the things that was really um exciting about the um um 
the success of the Build Public Renewables Act was um, the willingness to just uh, try a lot of different things um, and um, and see what worked, um, regardless of you know what uh, what our predispositions toward them might be. Did that surprise you? Do you think if you had gone back to gone back in time and talked to yourself when you were joining the DSA, do you think you would have been surprised to learn that in 2023 they would actually have major a major legislative impact on the state of New York. Yeah, I, it would surprise me. I mean, I tend to be a a, a fairly optimistic person, um, but um, but nothing in my experience in America as a leftist of, of, of many many years. I mean, you know, I don't know how old you are, Chuck, but um, but um, I'm in my mid fifties. Um, and you know this is it um this is this was um quite um it, it was it was quite unimaginable certainly um in the 80s and 90s that such a thing would happen um and really for most of the 2000s um, as well um i think um I, I think a lot of us had high hopes that um the bernie sanders movement would um make more things possible um but um but you know we didn't um, really imagine um what um, what that could look like and i think that what we're seeing right now is um you know some examples of what that could look like so this is you see this as the lingering legacy of the bernie sanders type of uh grassroots campaigning that he was doing you see that as a extension of that as well as even maybe going back to occupy do you, do you see this as yeah. kind of on a I don't want to make it overly simplistic, but kind of a linear history of even going back to yeah. the anti-NAFTA debate or anti-NAFTA actions, the anti-free trade act and actions, then going to Occupy and even the anti-war actions. Do you see this as part of this one kind of linear evolutionary history that's taking place right now with the left in the United States? I definitely do. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that Occupy... Um, um, and and you're right to um, trace Occupy's origins um, back to um, some of those anti-globalization, um, um, you know, protest movements of the of the 90s and early 2000s. Um, I think that absolutely a through line there, um, both in the um, the actual people who were doing that organizing and in the um, and in the way that they were thinking about it. Um, and I, I think that um, and and I think that you can definitely see a similar through through line from Occupy to the Bernie movement. Um, I think that um, I think that one of the re- things that Bernie Sanders did was um, both to help people think big, um, you know, and you know about that um, social that that achieving a more um, just um, society, um, a more a just a more just economy um, really involves um, um, some kind of socialism and that socialism is a matter of state power. And I think that was a huge change from Occupy to the Bernie movement. Um, but I think that also, um, so I think that um, also um, Bernie Sanders showed that um, it was possible for people to um, to come together around such a vision um, and uh, and really um, work together um, in a practical way. 
I think a lot of people, unfortunately, have taken from the Bernie moment um, simply the lesson that Bernie lost. <laughs> um, and uh, um, but I think that um, and that's uh, just a you know uh, and uh, you know for somebody. Uh, for somebody my age and um and you know not making any assumptions but probably your age as well um it's really was not very surprising that bernie sanders did not become president um and what's actually more surprising um is um the um the movement that those campaigns um sparked and the way that they really got um people thinking about what could be possible um in america and um and that we could um we we could make socialist demands on the system um, and organize um, to make some of them a reality. On the climate change legislation that was passed in New York State, you write that while other states have taken steps as well, Illinois' uh, 2021 labor-led Climate and Equitable Jobs Act comes to mind. New York is the first state to do so in a way that explicitly rejects the neoliberal obligation to put corporate profits first. Instead, the BPRA puts the publicly owned New York Power Authority in charge of building renewable energy with a mandate to do so in the interest of working people. Now, last week, we started the show by citing an article at The Guardian, which reported no new offshore wind farms will go ahead in the UK after the latest government auction. None of the companies hoping to build big offshore wind farms in UK waters took part. The annual auction awards contracts to generate renewable electricity for 15 years at a set price. The companies had told ministers that the set price was too low for offshore wind farms to take part after costs in the sector increased because of inflation. The auction would have saved consumers two billion pounds a year compared with the cost of using electricity generated by a gas power plant. So the UK tried to do right by working people with the lower set price for electricity. Put, but the uh, uh, private sector uh, said there's not enough profit in providing cleaner, renewable energy at prices that working people could potentially afford. In the US or anywhere, will the market allow the state to go through with policies that respond to climate change and do so in the interest of working people? Is the market the biggest obstacle right now to climate change? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Um, I think that um, the story you just told about the UK really shows how um, badly we need um, public, um, publicly funded um, renewables and um, why it is um, so good and important that New York State was just able to do this because ab absolutely the um, the the private sector won't do it unless it's profitable. Um, this is um, so so this you know the build public renewables re um, um, represents a potential um, way um, that um, that it can be done um, with um, without their help without the cooperation of the private sector. Um, the um, and um and and i think um what's 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 also in, encouraging is it shows a model for other states and um, and municipalities to um do the same wind is an interesting um you know um i, I uh, this this morning um um i was reading a, a big report um on the effectiveness of biden's inflation reduction act um in encouraging um investment in renewables and um and it's going great with solar and a number of other technologies but wind is a big 
um, wind is a big gap. Um, they're um, having a, a really hard time um, get, um, getting wind energy built um, despite um, the Inflation Reduction Act. So, you know, we're clearly having the same problem as the UK um, getting um, the um, the private sector to um, um, to um, feel it's profitable to build more wind farms. So yeah, we really do we we really do need this. We need we need the public renewables, and um, and um, I'm, um, I'm hoping that um, we can keep getting it done in New York. But I'm also really hoping that people can do it elsewhere as well. But the. Uh... One of the things that you write is that eco-socialists in New York won because their goal was unabashedly socialist, because they built yeah. a bench of elected leaders and because they were willing to try everything, even with great risk, while rethinking strategies that weren't working. They're willing to try everything. They're unabashedly socialist. How likely is it that the success that might have been when it might have happened from New York State is going to be squashed by the right again by either saying they're a bunch of socialists or this is government interference was it was uh, the goal was unabashedly socialist but was the rhetoric and the message and can that again do you think it have the same effect as it has happened in the past as soon as you say it's socialist as soon as you say it's government interference it seems like the polls turn against it um yeah it's possible um i mean i think we'll see um i think um I mean, I th I think that what what it will it will really depend on um, um how quickly um how quickly it can get done and how quickly um the um you know people can start enjoying the benefits of it you know there there's always a big risk um with um uh, with any kind of um, socialist policy that um that the um you know that the right starts um hating on it before it's happened you know before people um, have the chance to enjoy the benefits of it you know so um you know that i i think there um but i think one thing that um that it um uh, that it really has going for it politically is um well for, um is that um um, people are really concerned about the climate crisis, and um, people have seen that um, the private sector alone is um, is not sufficient um, to address it, and also that um, you know that you know there's a um, there's a way in which with um, with some of the um, larger context, um, the socialists were able to make the argument that. Um, you know, we, we, we don't, we're, we're so far off from, the state was so far off from meeting its own targets. Um, I think you mentioned this in your intro, um, you know, that, um, that, you know, we kind of, um, we, 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 they were able to some extent to make the argument that, look, we have these targets. We know that climate change is important. We're so far off from meeting them. We have to do something different. Um, and that argument was persuasive to many people, um, many people who were not socialists. And um, further, the legislation itself um, has a um, um, so had something like a 68% approval rating in the general public. The governor 
Governor Kathy Hochul has a, a, a only won her re-election by fifty two percent. So you know that the, there's I, I think there's a lot of compelling political reasons um, why um, um, wh- why the um, the politicians um, might want to stick with this for a while and at least give it a chance. Um, further, I mean that um, the DSA has been successful in. Um, um, launching primary changes to many of the Democrats who were resisting this legislation and standing in its way. So I think that will also um, help intimidate some of them. But the DSA, as you know, the DSA is unabashedly pro-worker, but the way that the right had framed it, and even people in the center, uh, in the center centrist leftists, if you will, or liberals or whatever, uh, they uh, have uh, tried to make it sound like, you know, environmentalism is anti-worker. Well, the DSA is pro-worker. You write the question shared by centrist Democrats at the time was whether climate as a broad issue could mobilize working class Americans. Was that because of that perception that environmentalism and jobs were in competition with each other? Is the BPRA, is that about not just, uh, you know, decarbonizing the economy, but is it about decarbonizing jobs? Absolutely. I mean, and that I think was one of the things that was so powerful about it was um, that um, you're exactly right, that um, one of the things that um, right wing and centrist discourse has done um, is often successfully um, pit environmental concerns against um, the um, welfare and well-being of working people um, and um, and the, um, uh, the and with with this campaign um, the DSA was able to credibly uh, argue look um, working people cannot afford these um, these high energy bills, you know, from um, from these these for, the way these for profit companies are just um, are just um, you know um, recklessly um, um, jacking up these prices, um, and um, and on the other hand as well, um, um, we can uh, working people need um, the jobs to be good, you know, need the labor protections, they need to be, um, they need to be unionized jobs, there need to be, um, there need to be wage, um, wa- wage controls, um, uh, wa- uh, wage um, floor. Um, so, um, and actually, um, Kathy Hochul, the governor, um, kind of shot herself in the foot with this because the compromise that she offered on the bill had stripped it of the labor protections um, as well as um, the environmental justice protections. So um, so she actually really, um, um, you know, um, um, revealed um, that the um, that the centrists were, you know, maybe okay with doing something on climate, but not in a labor-friendly way and not in a way that um, that respected the poorest communities. Um, and so, um, so you know, DSA was able to say no. You know, we won't accept this compromise um, and um, and keep um, keep keep playing hardball for um, a, a truly labor-friendly bill. Um, I think that really, um, I, th- I think that's one of the things that is so exciting about uh, this victory is that um, that you know New York was able to show that um, it does not have to be a trade-off um, between climate um, and the needs of the working class. In fact, um, what both um, the planet and the working class need 
um, is a um, a world where uh, fossil fuel companies have a lot less power. Um, hopefully, a world eventually without fossil fuel and utility companies. Um, but certainly for now, um, one where um, where they control a little bit less. We are speaking with journalist, essayist, author, teacher, and columnist Liza Featherstone, who's returned to This Is Hell to talk about her in these times article. New York socialists won big on climate. How did it happen? And it's a fascinating story because you can walk through the entire process of step by step. And one of the best things I think about it, uh, Liza, is it shows how in this kind of process, you don't know what turns are going to be taken. You don't you don't have a written down plan. It's not like a step by step. Here's an instruction book. It's about just exactly what movement organizing is about, which is listening to the people and then doing what the people want to be done. You write in 2018, these attitudes began to change when it came to uh, thinking that there could be nothing, nothing could be done about climate change. Alexandria, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a Democratic Socialist bartender and a Standing Rock protester, won a congressional seat in Queens and championed the idea of a Green New Deal. It was the first time a U.S. elected official had proposed a plan to decarbonize the economy that matched the scale of the climate crisis. So whatever you think of what the content of that Green New Deal was at the time, again, it was historic because somebody had actually brought forth an idea, a plan to decarbonize the economy. So like the DSA, there has been a lot of debate around the Green New Deal since it began. And not only for those who are climate change deniers or anti-environmentalists, even those who support the environmental cause, even those who want to do something about climate change and now had varying levels of support for the Green New Deal. Has the Green New Deal like the DSA's tactics, has it evolved since 2018? Was the Green New Deal one thing in 2018 and it has become something different today? Um, yeah, that's a good question. So yeah, absolutely um, right. The, um, the the Green New Deal is the um, the inspiration and um, and foundation um, for this kind of um, for this kind of legislation um, for the Build Public Renewables Act. Um, and um i think that um i think that something interesting that we're seeing is that the green new deal um kind of um it it kind of um is coming to life in a lot of different um ways um you know that that it's um that you know there's that there's there ha- while there's been no um while there's no actual legislation um, called the Green New Deal, um, the ideas um, have um, the ideas have shown up in a lot of different places, including in some of Biden's um, own legislation, um, and um, and um, possibly even more um, promisingly um, in the in the form of um, of local efforts like the Build Public Renewables. So we we see the the Green New Deal as kind of um, um, less a less a specific policy and um, more as a set of values and ideas that are showing up all over the place and informing um, informing left and socialist climate politics. You write of 2018 when the Green New Deal was first being discussed. Quote: More and more young people were painfully aware of the climate crisis. And you quote a BP a B, uh, PRA um, strategist remembering the time well. He tells you, uh, I was becoming increasingly despondent. It's really dark to confront that without any framework for thinking about how there could be anything other than a totally disastrous 
future. Being despondent is to have a loss of hope or courage. We've discussed the epidemic of loneliness on the show several times. Is the DSA and the rise of socialism generally here in the United States an outcome of or response to any epidemic of hopelessness, especially in the face of climate change? Do you think DSA's success is because prior to the DSA, there just wasn't any hope being offered? I, I, I do think that um for a lot of um for a lot of activists that is the case. Um the um it's not the first time that I've interviewed um a DSA activist um who has said something like this. Um there was a, a, a there, there's a there's a guy, another eco socialist um who um is was credited for um credited with um, originating the term doom scrolling, <laughs> um, which is, uh, as your listeners may or may not know, is the practice of going on the internet and reading really, really depressing things one after another, uh, because that's what's coming across your um, social media is just a, like one, um, one, one really depressing disaster after another, many of them related to climate change. Um, that um, that same uh, that same activist, um, you, you know, he got um, he um, he got involved. He said he got involved in DSA partly to um, address his his unhealthy habit of doom scrolling and do something about the problems instead. And um, and he did, he said it it really did help. Um, and uh, um, and I think that um, one of the reasons that um that that I think um this kind of activism is a is a strong antidote um to such despair for um for some people is that um it really is um it really is very concrete like the demands are very um specific you can um you can you you win specific things um those specific things um really will um make things better you know it's not um you know we're I don't think anyone has any illusions that we're going to um, stop the climate crisis or stop climate change from happening. But I think, um, you know, um, the the recognition that there is so much we can save, you know, there's just so many, um, so many ecosystems, so many, um, you know, aspects of our civilization, so many, so many human lives. Um, and, you know, there's, you know, just, um, so much that um, can be saved and everything that we do, um, you know, can make a difference if we're fighting for the right kinds of things. Um, and, um, and, and I think that um, that's, that's something that um, a lot of people um, are finding, you know, I don't want to oversell um, activism as an antidote to despair. I mean, a lot of activists um, in the, on climate, also do burn out because um it can be um it can be very um depressing to think about these issues all the time um i think that um um in dsa there is a, there is a kind of a collective spirit that um that is very hopeful that um that that does support people in this work you write that the New York power campaign canvassed in neighborhoods suffering unreasonably high electric rates and the fallout of climate disasters. The devastating 2019 blackout in New York City left many stranded in elevators and subways, which revealed, according to Amber Ruther, then an NYC DSA member who was part of the early organizing, that Con Ed, a for-profit company with a monopoly, quote, 
didn't have the incentive to invest in even basic grid maintenance. You had that public power advocates argued that the government, without the profit motive and with democratic oversight and obligation, could do a better job. So was the problem, Liza, the profit motive existing whatsoever within the power sector, or is it just that it had become a monopoly? Can you have the you know, the profit motive to engage in the competition and motivate the innovation and bring about modernization and maintenance? Can you have the profit motive within a public power structure, uh, pu- uh, public utility structure, or, or can you not have the profit motive in whatsoever because it will ultimate, ultimately always lead to a monopoly? Is the problem the profit motive or the fact that it was a monopoly? Oh yeah, I mean that's a good question. Um, I, I I would tend to think that the problem really is the profit motive because um, there just there just isn't this um, the incentive um, to um, you know to do right by people and to um, to really plan um, for the future. I mean the the thing of uh, the thing about capitalism is it's um, it, it's very it's very much about um, the the motive is to make profits right now. Um, capitalists don't even care whether future capitalists are going to be able to make profits. So something like grid maintenance is a perfect example um, of that. You know, it, it's just like whatever is um, um, whatever is right in front of you and is going to allow you to um, to um, make a buck is, um, is is the priority. And not only are the um, the people who are getting stranded in elevators and having to, um, you know, get through their night in the dark. Um, not only are they not a priority, but you know, just even the basic, you know, future of your business um, is is sometimes not even a priority. So this is the, you know, this is the kind of thing that, um, you know, even even Adam Smith, who was not an anti-capitalist. Um, you know, uh, was always writing. Look, there's there's a lot of things that society needs that that can't be provided by the capitalists because they have no incentive to provide it. You know, and he, you know, in his day, that was things like you know roads, you know roads that roads that worked. And in our day, um, you know, even I, I think that you know even if you um, even if you aren't an anti-capitalist like me, you know, you've got to admit there are things that um, we need that are public goods that um, that the uh, private sector can't um, can't provide. And um, and certainly um, an, uh, an electrical grid appears to be one of them. You mentioned Assembly Member Zoran Mamdani from Astoria, Queens, saying that colleagues were puzzled by his lobbying for BPRA since he wasn't the sponsor of the bill. Legislators customarily spent political capital only on their own bills. When he called them, they'd say, why are you calling me? It isn't your bill. How do socialist elected officials employ their political capital differently from what is customary, and why do they do that? Yeah, it's um, it was really a, um, an interesting um, uh, glan- um glimpse into how um the um how socialist um legislating 
um, is different um, than um, political business as usual. I mean, that, um, you know, if you're a conventional um, politician, you're really, um, you're really about yourself, like your own individual political reputation, your own individual political capital, you want to be able to pass bills and say, I did that. Um, and, um, and for the socialists, it's really about, they want to be able to say, look, our movement did that you know, or DSA did that, we did that, um, you know, or even, you know, our, our community did that. Um, and, um, and so, um, yeah, so I think that, um, I think that, that the, um, the way that Zoran, um, you know, told that story was, was important, you know, that, you know, it was just not what, um, the, the bill certainly wouldn't have been passed, um, you know, if, if if they had left it only to the sponsors to push it through um but um but a um a, a group of you know even um even like six legislators which is not um a lot in the um in the you know scheme of the whole uh, new york state government um but you know even six legislators working on this um was a lot more um than um than than just one or two and you know it did it did really make a difference that they had that that collective consciousness and you know of going beyond like just the um, the ego um sort of the the ego driven model of politics where you're just really out for yourself but you, yeah, but you write about this, the challenges for the neophyte uh, lawmakers from the DSA, from socialist uh, uh, lawmakers. BPRA's sponsor in the state Senate, Kevin Parker, chair of the Energy and Telecommunications Committee, wasn't a socialist or a passionate supporter of public power. The DSA's Heller says, uh, but uh, DSA activists didn't realize how little good faith Parker brought with him. According to Heller, Parker committed to pushing BPRA if the group could get other legislators to support it. But when the DSA members approached other elected officials, they were told no one supports a bill unless the lead sponsor asks them to. It was apparent that Parker was trying to kill this legislation. You quote the DSA's Heller saying of Parker, he just lied to us. We realize that even though we're socialists, we weren't cynical enough. The Democrats of Albany didn't want to pass a climate bill because... There was too much money on the other side. You talk about how the DSA is trying to challenge the powers that be in the Democratic Party, whether they are liberals in Albany or whether they label themselves as uh, progressives in Albany. Money, cynical politics motivated purely by self-interest and distrustful of human sincerity or integrity. Is that by definition the politics of neoliberalism is the pol- are the politics of neoliberalism cynical and guided by the power of money is that what the DSA more than anything is trying to end the neo the politics of neoliberalism yeah i would say that's a really good way of putting it um that um that that this um, um this reality of um of politicians being um you know bought and often fully owned um, by industries um and um and um and being um you know absolutely um faithful um to those the industries that back them um you know and um and and then on the other hand often espousing progressive rhetoric you know um whether whether it be about um um, you know, um, like sort of nice feel-good identity politics stuff, or um, even about um, cli- the climate itself. Um, I think that um, that that's that certainly is neoliberalism, and exactly 
what um, what the DSA um, is organized um, to um, to to counter. Um, and in this case, um, in in this case, it was um, successful. Um, and um, but um, but it, yeah, it is um, it, it it is it is a heavy lift. You know, we see that some. You know, we see that some good can come out of um, a neoliberal model. I mean, the you know Joe Biden's Inflation Reduction Act is is very much in a neoliberal frame in that it's it, it's meant to um, encourage um, the private sector to um, to you know to uh, reduce its carbon emissions and make money while doing it. Um, and you know that uh, I mean that's that's certainly. Um, better than nothing better than the polluting business as usual but i think that um that it's really interesting that even while things like that are happening dsa is showing no you can make change outside of a neoliberal model you can confront um that um um that um capitalist supremacy um face to face one last question for you, Liza. We are speaking with journal. We have been speaking with journalist, essayist, author, teacher, columnist Liza Featherstone, who wrote the In These Times article: "New York Socialist One Big on Climate Change. How Did It Happen?" You can follow Liza on Twitter at L Feathers. That ends with a Z. The letter L, then Feather, and then a Z. And you can find all of our past interviews with Liza when you go to thisishell.com and you search on her last name, Featherstone. One last question for you. And as always, it's the question we hate to ask. You may hate to answer. Our audience will hate your response. It's the question from hell. You write that although leadership in the Assembly, the New York State Assembly, the lower house of the state legislature, still refused at this one point to introduce BPRSA, DSA had built power that Assembly person Sarah Hanna Shrestra uh, and the other socialist uh, legislators were able to press for a hearing. She says that hearing in uh, itself was a sign of how far the Albany common sense had evolved, although she emphasized that was before the Inflation Reduction Act passed and definitely before we knew what it meant. You explained that the Federal Inflation Reduction Act passed in August of 2022 provides direct funding for any public agency that builds a renewable energy. The Public Power Coalition commissioned a report revealing that Failing to pass BPRA would cost the state billions of dollars in federal funds, a convincing argument for money in state government. At that point, point uh, Shrestha emphasizes the consensus was moving toward this bill. So without yeah. that bottom line reasoning, what was the likelihood BPRA would pass? Is the, le- is the legislative victory that did take place was it more driven by the bottom line than by concerns over climate change? Hmm. I mean, I think that it was it was really one of those um, situations where everything came together. Um, I'm not sure that you have this victory without um, any single one of these factors. You know, I, I don't think that you have I don't think that BPRA happens without um widespread concern over climate change um i don't think it happens without um the um you know the new the new york state's um 
kind of unenforceable targets that it had already set, you know, like you sort of need um, that, um, that, 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 that sad um, little ineffective climate bill um, to get to this better one. Um, I don't think you, I don't think you'd see it without um, the massive organizing effort from DSA. Um, but yeah, I also don't think you necessarily would see it without the Inflation Reduction Act, which really pre um, produced um, a clear um, logic to bring people around who were not necessarily socialists. Um, you know, it's just one of those instances where some, you know, you just sometimes you really need every um, you need every factor, every historical circumstance that is working in your favor, and you need to, more importantly, be the people who can make the most of all of those historical factors, right? I mean, you've got a lot of people, um, you know, just, uh, you know, um, you know, sometimes you have everything in place, but nobody is organizing um, or making the arguments um, to get it done. In this case, um, a lot of the right historical circumstances were in place and um, people were ready to get it done. Do you think that the left, that socialists right now, uh, members of the DSA across the country, that they should be behind an, an awareness and an information campaign about what is in the IRA and how it can be employed to help out the most marginalized when it comes to challenging climate change. Yeah, I absolutely do. Um, I think that um, um, I think that the the uh, the the socialist line on on the IRA should be um, sure we um, you know we would prefer um, policy that um, that you know, wasn't, um, so that wasn't so pro-capitalist as this, but, um, there is a lot that we can build on, um, to, um, produce, um, more equitable, um, policy, more, um, more socialist leaning policy. Um, and there should absolutely be, um, be, um there should absolutely be more, um, inf information about what, what is in the IRA and how we can use it. I mean, I think that most people, um, would have, no idea that there were these provisions in the IRA that could um, that could lay such a, a sound foundation for a build public renewables campaign, and that can do so uh, all over the country in a in a, you know and and municipal governments can do it, state governments can do it, you know a school board could decide to do it. You know it's just. Um, a really uh um there there's some really great there's some really great stuff in that bill and it would be great if people would know more about it yeah it's crazy and there's actually money there to do to yeah, actually take exactly. action which is insane that then we don't know about it you know here's this uh, yeah. what would seem like potentially the greatest piece of legislation from the Biden administration potentially yeah. the only good piece of legislation for the Biden administration and yeah. and nobody knows about it. It just it is it's yeah. shocking to me. It's almost as if here we're going to pass this bill so it looks good to progressives, but then we're not going to tell them about it. And if they want to find out about it themselves, go, you know, look around in the bill. It's just it's mind-boggling yeah. to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I just actually wrote something on this very question like why don't we know more about the IRA? Um and uh and and I think that a lot of the reason is that um um we it doesn't arouse enough feelings. You know, because there, because there is media coverage on you know what is uh, you know some of the good things that it does, um, but um, but I, th I think I think a lot of it is that you know we're not we, um, these days we tend to 
learn about things on social media. And so social media really re rewards information that makes us really angry or sad. Right. <laughs> and, you know, so, you know, stuff that's, you know, like, here's this big legislation, some of it is good, and some of it is bad. And, you know, here is the nitty gritty of it. It's just um, really hard to get um, any kind of um, information traction on something like that. Liza, it's a pleasure having you back on the show again. Great to hear your voice. And I promise that it will not we won't have another pandemic again, so you can't come on the show for four years. I'll make sure that that doesn't happen again. Okay. All right. Take I mean, if we have another one, I, I'm definitely not coming back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Liza. Great hearing your voice. Always great to have you on the show. I'm going to be bugging Likewise, you in the near so. future and looking forward to your book coming out in February. Oh, thank you so much. Talk to you soon, Chuck. All right. Take care. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. If you're sitting there thinking, wait, what did Liza just say? Did she say socialists actually got climate change laws passed in New York through the Inflation Reduction Act? They actually got them funded? Seriously? That really just happened? Show your appreciation for completely listener-supported listener and commercial-free. This is Hell, providing over 27 years of content that you cannot find anywhere else, giving airtime to opinions, analysis, and perspectives like those of Liza that you won't hear anywhere else and provide new content to you absolutely free every week since 1996, including 10 years of free shows that you can listen to right now at thisishell.com. Show your appreciation for all of that by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and just clicking on support where you can see all the ways you can support This Is Hell. And somebody has to, because you know that to corporate media and public establishment media, corporate and public establishment media, this is hell, so nobody else is going to feed us. On our most recent bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, which went live again this past Thursday, September 14th, as This Is Hell, there's a lot of research writing, just thinking, about and finding people to discuss the hellish state of our existence. And the whole thing can be pretty damn depressing. But despite that self-inflicted agony, oddly, I find at least, at times, the entire painful process can be inspiring. Looking back at the history of the show, sure, there's plenty of hellish discussions about the cruelty and violence that plague our world, yet nearly all those bleak conversations end with these carriers of bad news somehow telling us that they have hope despite all that hell. Who knew a show declaring this is hell could bring hope? I know I didn't, and I'm the host of the stupid show. Following my rant on being inspired by a show with a gloomy name of This Is Hell, we played an interview from the first day of fall 20 years ago on September 20th, 2003. Two years and nine days after 9-11, back then we were recognizing the second anniversary of the 9-11 attacks by speaking with a writer from a conservative rag who was on to talk about the Republican Party and their desire to completely militarize U.S culture. Yep, the Republican plan after 9-11 was to install militarism 
Our guest was Kevin Baker, who had just written the Harper's cover story, We're in the Army Now, the GOP's plan to militarize our culture that appeared in the October 2003 issue of Harper's Magazine. It was the cover story, in fact. At the time, Kevin was writing the monthly in the news column for the very conservative American Heritage Magazine. Go figure. But the only way you can hear me finding inspiration and realizing this is hell and a 20-year-old talk with a conservative magazine writer on the Republican plan to militarize U.S. culture, as well as get a special discount code for all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. And you get to ask a question from hell for me, your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, and to stay on top of, well, pretty much everything going on behind the scenes with exclusive content only for Patreon subscribers. The only way to do all of that is by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. Over the weekend, Taylor joined us as our most recent Patreon patron. So thanks for subscribing, Taylor. Dan, what is this week's question from hell, and how are our listeners responding on Patreon? This week's question from hell is, what can climate change do for you? And this is another Will Ippen written uh, question from hell, so if you have a problem with it, please send all of your emails and complaints to Will, and I don't know how you do that. <laughs> David S. says, get get you oceanfront property in Cal- uh, Arizona. <laughs> Arizona. I got you. Uh, Kaz said, drown my personal dumpster fire in a once-in-a-century flash storm and float it out to the rising warming sea. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Jeff H., Ruin my garden. <laughs> Jeffrey T. Finally melt your ex's cold ice, ice cold heart. Oh, okay. Uh, Jeff Dorchin, kill fascist creator of Dilbert, Scott Adams. <laughs> Specifically, like. kill Scott Adams. Yeah, well, okay. Makes it worth it. Okay. Uh, essential, create jobs, palm leaf. Banners can't be automated. <laughs> That's true. Uh, Andrew M. Finish the job already. <laughs> Old Grouch uh, uh, has a quite a long one. I'll read some of it, and uh, Patreon listeners can look online for more. It created a ch- the choice of lo- a lifetime: either end it all by heat or by nuclear war. Seems there is a lead in the race for nuclear war just now in Ukraine. However, this summer's 120 heat index for days on end in New Mexico is running a close second. Good thing I am old and all this good stuff is over now anyway. (laughs) I'm so sorry, young folks, that this generation left you such crap to deal with. That's the first half. That's the first half. So if you want to read the rest, maybe we'll share the rest of it tomorrow. Yeah. Old Grouch has got plenty to say. By the way, it was very well thought out. Yeah, and the rest is too. Uh, Bruce S., bring visitors, some hopefully welcomed. (laughs) (laughs) Slug, give me an extra week or two without frost so my plants can make it to the finish. Uh, That'd be all right. uh, They're just going to light on fire, my friend. (laughs) Mason W., give you a greater appreciation for a cool, crisp breeze. All right. Is that it for Patreon? That's all. All right. So we'll be getting more of giving, uh, reading more of your answers to this week's question from hell. 
on tomorrow's show. Again, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can post it at our Patreon page or our Discord, or you can email it to chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner following Jeff Dorch in the moment of truth. And now the return, not the return, it's never the return. I got to get this out of the script. Let me start that all over. And now... Dr. Sebastian Voper, a historian himself, an historian himself, who gives us the historical context of the past so we can have a better understanding of the present. In his segment, The Past Inside the Present, take it away, Sebastian. The Past Inside the Present. Today, I want to talk about the Civil War that defined the 19th century in one of the world's most important countries. Today, a country uh, that really only came into its own in the uh, on the world stage in the 20th century, uh, when this country became one of the world's great powers. In this war, a part of this country that I'm talking about split off from the rest, and in the ensuing violent confrontations, more people died than in other in any other war, civil or otherwise, that this country had ever been involved in up to the present day. Of course, if you are a regular listener, you will be aware that I am pulling a fast one here. I am being cheeky, and I think this is indeed funny, because no dear non-frequent listener, I am not, in fact, talking about the American Civil War, uh, which was also not a great time for anyone involved, but pales in comparison to the conflict of biblical proportions that is on the menu today. And that would be the Taiping Rebellion in China, a civil war that lasted for over 14 years and saw somewhere between 20 and 30 million people dead. But this enormous civil war is something that in the West is barely ever mentioned um, in, in historical education. So let me take you to school about the Taiping Rebellion. As we have established in the last segment, China in the 19th century wasn't a bit of a tight spot. The ruling Qing dynasty had become quite badly corrupt. Famines struck the country at somewhat regular intervals due to mismanagement, some due to natural disasters. Um, And the local governments were too corrupt and too ineffective to do much about this. Uh, The British, with some American assistance, were flooding the country with opium to the point that the Chinese society was starting to crack and crumble. When the emperor decided to at least try and stop Westerners from openly importing horribly addictive drugs to his country, the Westerners pulled out their guns and basically said, you and what army? That army? (laughs) Pathetic. Look, they're all dying from our superior firearms. Now do as we say before we just take the whole thing over. In the more remote regions and countrysides, bandit gangs and warlords roamed and plagued the common people. Peasants abandoned their lands, which only made the famines worse, and in the southern provinces, disdain for the ruling Manchu rose. Remember, the Qin dynasty of Chinese emperors were of an ethnic minority from the country's northeast from Manchuria. They were not Han Chinese. Also, Christian missionaries roamed the land, trying to convert as many Chinese as they possibly could to Christianity. This will become important later. Uh, in this climate of general upheaval and instability, a young man by the name of Hong Huoshu tried to become a government bureaucrat. But Hong, just for the life of himself, couldn't pass the imperial examination, which was a truly grueling um well, exam uh, when one tried to become a, a, a Mandarin bureaucrat. He failed it for the third time. 
1837. And upon this failure, Hong suffered a nervous breakdown. Uh, he was passed out for several days after he had returned home from trying to, you know, pass this exam. And while he was passed out, uh, the young man from Guang, uh, from Guangdong province had a vision. In this vision, he visited heaven, where he sat at the at at um, where he saw that he had a heavenly family that was distinctly different from his family on earth. His heavenly father lamented to, to Hong that he was angry that the people on earth were not worshipping him. Um, also, he said that Hong's given name was basically heresy and that he should henceforth call himself Hong Xiuquan. After Hong came out of this delirium, uh, he adopted this new name, Hong Xiuquan, for himself. He also decided to become a teacher, which uh, was how he spent the subsequent years. And since he was more teaching than being a good little nerd studying for the next imperial examination attempt, he also failed the fourth attempt that he took in 1843. Hong didn't mind that, though, this time. Instead, after this fourth failure, he started to engage with some of the Christian missionaries in the area. And opening himself up to Christian teachings, he suddenly understood what, the, what his vision meant. The father figure he had seen clearly was God himself. In the vision, he also, as I mentioned, had a, a heavenly family, and in this family, he had an older heavenly brother with whom he had set out to slay some demons in heaven. Um, and obviously, it came to him that this brother clearly was Jesus Christ. And both God and Jesus had told Hong to go forth and rid this world, the uh, you know, earth off demons, just as he had done in his vision, dream, world, uh, heaven type situation. So Hong went to work smashing non-Christian idols and figures um, and began preaching his own interpretation of Christianity in southern China, okay, where he began to attract followers. In 1847, Hong was introduced to Southern Baptist missionary Reverend Isaacar J. Cox. I, 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 this 19th century names are wild. Uh, Reverend Isaacar J. Cox Roberts in Guangzhou, uh, the city known in the West as Canton, uh, just a bit inland up the Pearl River from Hong Kong and Macau, if your Chinese geography needs some re reference points. Uh, there he studied scripture and converted to Protestantism. Uh, his associate and partner in all things holy, Feng Yunshan, in the meantime, had founded the God Worshipping Society, a religious movement that was dedicated to spreading Hong's version of Christianity. Hong uh, became the leader officially of the society in 1847, and that was the beginning of the Taiping faith. For us modern-day Westerners, the God-worshipping society seems like a pretty weird thing. Hong and Feng combined aspects of a Christian religious sect um, with kind of aspects of a you know, Chinese religious sect, a paramilitary militia, and a secret society into one potent mixture. Hong's teachings rejected Chinese tradition, since the tradition of the time he found was a tool by the ruling Manchu to oppress the people and not truly Chinese. He instead sought to infuse his idiosyncratic version of Christianity with older Chinese folklore and older traditions that predated Manchu rule. Hong also started to preach against the ruling emperor and his vassals, who he identified as the demons that Christ himself had told him to destroy. Many peasants, farmers, and miners joined the movement. 
because the society had earned much goodwill from the people when uh, the society began engaging in what essentially were peacekeeping activities where they started to uh, fight bandits and local warlords um, basically for the peasants, for the people. In 1850, then, imperial troops passed through the villages where the god-worshipping society was strongest and threatened to kill all converts unless they denied Hong openly. Uh, the god-worshippers basically replied to that with uh, what amounted to, well, we in this army, um, and amassed 30,000 people in the city of Jintiang, where they kicked the imperial troops' butts. And that was the beginning of the Taiping Rebellion against the Qin Emperor. On January 11, 1851, Hong then went and declared the Heavenly Kingdom of Peace, the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, with himself as the absolute ruler, as the Heavenly King. A growing part of China's eastern provinces then rose against the emperor and joined the Heavenly Kingdom. In 1853, the Taipings captured the old imperial capital of Nanjing. Uh, and this is kind of like, as an aside, Nanjing is uh, was the capital of the Chinese Chinese emperor, empire, essentially, uh, before the capital was moved to Beijing. Uh, Beijing is essentially the northern capital. Nanjing is the southern capital. It's literally what these names mean. Uh, anyway, and uh, Hong then declared Nanjing as the heavenly capital of their kingdom. Uh, during the takeover of Nanjing, the Taipings then basically enacted a bloody genocide on the Manchu population of the city uh, because Hong had declared them demons. And after establishing the Heavenly Kingdom, Hong withdrew from public life into the palace in Nanjing and uh, ruled bypassing decrees. He lived a life of decadence and luxury, secluded in his palace, surrounded by a small harem of women. Uh, the Taiping managed to hold on to a significant portion of eastern China then for almost a decade. They tried to capture Shanghai several times, but here the Qin armies repelled them repeatedly. The Heavenly Kingdom eventually lasted until 1864, uh, when the Qin armies finally managed to push the Taipings back and laid siege to Nanjing. Hong himself died during that siege because, while it's a siege, the city had exhausted all food reserves and even Hong himself lacked supplies in his palace. So he started eating wild vegetables that were growing on the palace grounds and those gave him apparently a fatal case of food poisoning. But even after the city had been retaken and Hong was dead, the fighting did not stop for quite some time after, uh, with Qin and Qin-affiliated armies mopping up subsequent rebellions and uprisings for years and years after the Taiping had been defeated. However, the Qin were now back in control, at least nominally, of the entire country. But their grip remained severely weakened. As I said, they kept mopping up other uprisings and rebellions that upset the imperial order across the country for decades to come. The Europeans also still kept bringing in mass amounts of opium, and also tens of millions of people had just died. As is usual with most wars, the biggest amount of deaths came from famine and plague uh, that all this, you know, warring caused. The Taiping Rebellion exacerbated the existing problems China in the 19th century was facing, which had a lot to do with an overpopulation crisis because more Chinese children now were surviving into adulthood than did before, while the agricultural output of uh, the country remained steady, which resulted in these frequent famines. And then large parts of the country's food-producing regions fell into the rebellion and constant warfare, which is an easy recipe for mass death on this really just staggering scale. 
Why is the Taiping Rebellion still important today, though? Here's a weird thing. The Chinese Communist Party are actually huge fans of Hong Xiaquan, which seems contradictory, but what with the whole absolute monarch of a theocracy type thing. But the CCP revere the Taipings due to what they see as a form of proto-communism among the people that the Taipings were practicing. There is certainly something to it. The Taiping were extremely communal. And like the communists, when they came to power, the Taiping rejected the ruling Chinese traditions of their time as well. And there are still today many modern monuments across China that recall the Taiping rule and not in a let's remember this awful tragedy, what were they thinking kind of way, but actually in a celebratory light. Which, well, it's almost like other societies can have vastly different interpretations of political dogmas than we do. Here we only hear that the Taiping Rebellion caused millions and millions of deaths and that the Taiping engaged in genocidal practices. But it is important to remember that they also faced practices that were no less genocidal from the Qin loyalists, just that the opposing genocide was not rooted in an ethnic distinction, but rather in religious persecution and upholding of imperial rule. Which, just because you face a genocide yourself doesn't make it okay to return the favor, just to be clear here, but the Taiping Rebellion was a reaction to a deep crisis of the Chinese state, and 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 had that state not been in that crisis in the first place, they wouldn't have been able to successfully challenge the Qin emperors for a full decade. Anyway, I guess hell is other people after all. Um, come back next week where I'll talk about another rebellion. Hey, get your punching bags ready. We'll talk about the boxers. Oh, sweet. I love the boxer rebellion history. I can't wait for that as well. Dude, excellent. Excellent job again today, Sebastian. Thank you Thank very you. much. You. I really appreciate it. I love learning from you. Thank you very much and enjoy the rest of your week. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to you as well. I'll try. So, Dan, what's Jeff talking about during this week's Moment of Truth later on this week's show? Jeff will be letting you know what you can expect from your dem friends throughout the coming year. And who are our upcoming guests on this week's show? We'll have Kimberly Crenshaw returning to This Is Hell to discuss her new book, Hashtag Say Her Name, Black Women's Stories of Police Violence and Public Silence. Kimberly is a professor of law at UCLA and in Columbia Law School and is also a leading authority in the area of civil rights. So I was reading her book over the weekend because I work every day of the freaking week. And uh, wow, I was in tears. I couldn't even express to my girlfriend what I was reading because I, it, it, it's it's just an amazing work. Again, the name of her book is Hashtag Say Her Name, and Kimberly Crenshaw is going to be our next guest here on This Is Hell. Also, later on this week, Intercept reporter Alice Sperry will be on to discuss an article that will not be posted until tomorrow, Tuesday. In her writing, Alice reports on the challenges facing survivors of sexual violence by Russian troops and how they are exacerbated by Ukraine's treatment of suspected collaborators, including new harsh collaboration legislation which bars Ukrainians from sharing information with enemies of the state. Alice writes about U.S. foreign policy, abuses by military and security forces, and the repression of dissent. She has reported from Ukraine, Palestine, Haiti, El Salvador, Colombia, and across the United States. Thanks to Dan Kugler for producing today's show. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. This is not the media. This is hell.